The 10th Collective is an initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design created to help connect black designers searching for their next opportunity with the companies that want to hire them. So if you're a black designer and you're looking for a new job, go to the10thcollective.com to sign up for free or check out the link in the show notes. Speaking of jobs, Revision Path's job board is part of the 10th Collective, and you can go there to browse job listings, post your own jobs, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Design B&B is looking for a designer in Chicago, Illinois. Peak Design is looking for two roles for their San Francisco office, an assistant product developer and a mechanical design engineer. For more information on these listings, including DEI statements, qualifications, salary, and more, visit revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. We're here to help you find your next big opportunity today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. We're helping to raise money for Selma Tornado Relief with the United Way of Central Alabama. Now, back in January, a tornado ripped through my hometown of Selma, Alabama, and while they're still slowly rebuilding, it's really going to take a massive effort to help get things back to some semblance of normalcy. So if you're in a position to help out, then text the word SELMA to 62644 and donate any amount that you can. Also, if you send me proof of your donation, I will match it 100% up to the first $1,000 donated. Again, text SELMA to 62644. I'll also put this information in the show notes. Big, big thanks to those of you who have already donated. Revision Path is sponsored by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is also sponsored by Hover. Do you have something new that you want to launch this year, like an art project or a podcast or even your own website? Whatever it is that you're passionate about and you want to build it online, Hover has got your back. You know, everything online begins with a domain name, and Hover makes the process of choosing and using your domain name a piece of cake. If you get stuck, they have a best-in-class customer support team that can help you out every step of the way. And there's free Who Is Privacy, meaning you can keep your identity safe from hackers or other bad folks out there. Get started today with Hover by going to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thank you for your support. 
Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Ube Urban. Ube is a multidisciplinary designer and artist and a senior executive responsible for designing customer experiences occupying the innovation space. We'll get more into that later. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hello, everyone. This is Ube Urban, and I'm a customer user experience, either director, practitioner, and chameleon within um, the customer experience space and digital transformations. Now, just to kind of, you know, I think level set a bit for the audience, and we'll, we'll probably go into this later, but what is customer experience? What does that mean? Customer experience is kind of the, here's another buzzword for you, the digital experience. So physical and digital omni-channel experiences. So really focusing on each individual point where a customer may interact with the brand, whether through social channels, going to a website, or even going through some type of service, whether it's a buy flow, creating an account, and what have you. Basically, you're looking at the efficiencies and or pain points and trying to create opportunities from that to create a holistically better and hyper-personalized experience. And this is done through many other ways that we can unpack later. Now, when you and I last talked, you were working at a company, Simon Kucher and Partners, I think is what it's called. Yes. Um, how's that been going? It's been going great. We officially separated. So, oh. Yes. Yeah. I guess it is uh, great. <laughs> That's the case. You're like, it's great. I'm no longer working there. It's wonderful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hence the tone in my voice <laughs> may seem more joyful and uh, relaxed and even keel and less anxiety in the background. And, you know, it was for the best choice of, of both of us, you know, having that leadership support and buy-in. Also trying to meet goals uh, within a year. I mean, in the digital space, if you ask anybody, it's pretty much like dog years. So um, mm -hmm. in your first year, you pretty much have to create any type of game-changing go-to-market strategies, you know, with these unrealistic expectations. But at the same time, you're just up for the challenge. You know, you think you can meet and exceed that, but given the amount of time, given how you unpackage processes and methodologies, cultural within an organization, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, especially uh, shifts in org. So um, yeah. that this is a, a very problematic within the space, you know, like everybody is moving jobs, uh, your leaders are changing, probably anywhere from one to maybe even three times a, a year. And this is not necessarily healthy, not only for myself, but the people that you interface with and lead. There's a lot of fluctuations in morale. And it's really hard when your job is on the line, not because of what you do as a practitioner and what you bring to the table, but rather if you're a useful resource, a number. Mm -hmm. What can you do for me? Do I like you? Can we interface? Can yeah. you opt into my swim lanes of success. And, you know, it's usually sink or swim. And, or are you the gatekeeper of your success? Not anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. So what do your, your current days look like now? Like what, what kind of work are you doing just in general? My current days, I mean, the separation is, is very fresh. So it's 
going back to the pastures and seeing the grasses greener and whether I want to go into pixel pushing and being a quintessential user experience, user interface designer within the tech space, or do I want to lead and build another department? There's a lot of open-ended questions and kind of instant gratifications. Yes, of course, I want to go back into my like designer years, but to be honest, like I know too much behind a curtain, so it's hard to have that niche aperture, you know, to like put on my blinders. I, I cannot do it because I'm exposed to so many different aspects of the professional space and not only as the design space as a collection, but more of the business, who you have to interface with, the different dialects that you have to speak, cultivating the relationships in order to really bring up your sense of self, your accountability, and basically the reach you have within an organization or clients, you know, and this has everything and nothing to do with the reason why I got into being an artist or a designer. I know what you mean. I think when you get to a certain stage in your career, you've just seen too much. You yeah. know how the sausage is made. You're not interested. It's too, It's and I mean, it's too much in that it sort of prevents you from really getting into the work because now there's all these other things that you have to contend with that don't have to do with the work, as you've mentioned, that can sort of impede your performance, your progress, what you're able to accomplish, et cetera. Yeah, I feel you, especially in a space that changes as much as you know, kind of design and technology do, particularly the tech space. I mean, the tech space over the past, what, six months has been like the yes. Red Wedding in yeah. Game of Thrones. Like every week I'm hearing 10,000 people are laid off from these companies. And it's like, geez, yeah. what, you know, what but does that do? These new openings here. Yeah, and you're like, okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because the work doesn't disappear, no, you know, no. just because they laid these people off. So it's, I don't know, it's a... It's an odd time. So I, I get what you mean about just kind of like slowing down and trying to figure out what the next move is going to be. Because, look, the older you get, it ain't too many more moves you can make. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. Know, <laughs> you know, that, that that same bounce back doesn't get easier. I would yeah, say yeah, one, the older you get and two, just moves, you know, yeah, like yeah. just the more that you get into it. It's like, OK, right. what do I want the next next thing to be now? You know, you've been occupying what you call the innovation space for like the past five or six years now. How do you define that? Innovation is not innovative anymore. You know, when I self-reflect and look back, let's just say on revisiting my CV, innovation just doesn't mean what it is today. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you're working on an, an initiative and you're doing something that is unheard of, at least within, let's just say, the direct-to-consumer, even retail space, and you're doing heat tracking, you're doing eye gazing, you're doing everything that nestles under machine learning and computer vision, it feels like you're basically trendsetting that particular space. But when six months go by, or even to a year, and it feels that everybody's on that bandwagon, or you can do a quick Google search and find research segmentation of various customer markets and how they use it or how larger companies are using this type of technology within their flagship stores, it, it's not innovative anymore. It's just part of the work. You know, it's uh, business as usual. 
innovative spaces is basically trying to nurture and shift with the customer and what the behavior is of what they're interfacing at that given time. Platforms shift in so many different ways depending how you're using it. Basically having a computer in your back pocket, we're used to that. We're used to doing every single thing that we can do on a computer on our phones. You know, let alone you have an iPad or you have a desktop setup or what have you. So we are basically spoiled by all these experiences and, you know, basically selling our digital footprint and souls to a lot of these organizations. So, you know, this is something also that we didn't really talk about. You know, we're kind of skimming the surface of like what it meant to have privacy, what it meant to start to establish trust if we're starting to peel back the layers and find out a lot more about one particular person or even thousands of people. Are people okay with basically selling their digital souls for hyper-personalized experiences? It's very controversy. And no matter where that landscape goes, people are always thinking about it. Where's my data? Where's my work landing? What server is it on? If it's in the cloud, what does that mean? Is it safe? Where are my archives at? What is attached to my name? If somebody's trying to extract and just find out a little bit more about you, is that information correct? You know, like there's there's so many like different outliers and things to like consider, um, especially within the umbrella of innovation. So Innovation, you know, it was a word that you could use for anything that didn't have a set definition, you know, user experience UI. Organizations still don't know what these practitioners really do and what they can bring to the table, but you can lump that under innovation practices because it's like, hey, we have people that are basically jack of all trades. They're chameleons. They're entrepreneurs. That's usually kind of the newer way of like, hey, you have so many different traits and interest in your background. Here, we'll just slap this buzzword on it. So as I went through it at the time of, you know, in this trend setting space and trying to basically peel back these layers of what identity was within the technological space was, it was very interesting. but. You know, as it became pretty much shifting into, you know, the status quo, it's hard to make something um, compelling and different. He said innovation is not innovative anymore. I felt that that Mm. is that is so true. I mean, I think, to the you know, even your earlier point about sort of these new considerations around privacy and like where our data is going and things like that. I think if there's anything the past few years have taught us is that people while they are concerned about, you know, what company is selling their data, they're also giving it away freely. Yes. Um, you know, like you think about, you know, I think over the past few months, the biggest sort of topics and, you know, te- I feel like our intersections of technology and culture have revolved around AI generated arts, you know, chat GPT, et cetera. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, yes, it is these kind of artificial intelligence things, these language models that are, outputting this stuff but it's only as good as what we give it or what we sort of use for it like the ai art is pulling from stuff that is already publicly available on the internet the chat gpt stuff is pulling from you know the immense corpus of text that's already available online now granted 
I think when the web and the internet were, you know, kind of first created, especially as they got popularized, that's not something that we even considered as people started sharing stuff. Like I remember vividly the age of quote unquote user generated content, (laughs) the the whole web 2.0 era, people could not put enough stuff willingly online, videos, photos, location. I mean, Foursquare, people ain't doing Foursquare no more. (laughs) You mean to tell me I can track exactly where I've been and where people are and congregating? Like that shit is now like a huge security risk. So it's interesting now that, you know, yeah, the innovation space has, uh, has shifted and changed as technology has improved. Right. And then we go into like instant gratification. You know, this piggybacks off of all the behavior of these data breaches and basically providing all this information. You know, you have a driver's license, you have a credit card, you have pre-check, you know, to to mm-hmm. fly. Like you're basically selling your whole background just to have a better experience. But like this means you're giving like your 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 fingerprints. You have like your mugshot. You have every you're basically getting a background check pulled. And a lot of this is happening even if you have an email and a lot of times it's it's great to have these interactions to demystify like, oh, people, you know, you have these broad statements. Oh, I don't, you know, share my data or I don't put my stuff on a drive. And I just ask people simple questions. Do you have a driver's license? Mm-hmm. Do you have a credit card? Do you have an email? And they're like, yeah, I have all of those, of course. And I'm like, what is your email title? Oh, it's a Gmail. Mm, interesting. And when I was at AT&T, we had some pretty top secret products where you can essentially see what your marketers are pushing, your segments, how to respond to that, what campaigns would be basically pushed out if it triggered any type of red flags. So basically, what you're seeing and what you're being pushed, you're not controlling that in the back end. And it even got to a point where, you know, you could see the types of emails that were coming into a particular customer's uh, account, you know, and you think, oh, yeah, my email, it's my safe space, it's my haven, you know, nobody has access to it. That's not true. And if you work for any large company, like you pretty much have to sign over any TNC and I mean, who reads terms and conditions anymore? Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's not happening. You want to use the latest, cool, amazing flagship phone. Guess what? You're going to have to go through all that terms and conditions to basically sign over everything that you do on this computer Mm -hmm. to, to me, the company. It's something where, you know, where you say it in retrospect, either you're okay with it or not. Sometimes you have visibility. Most societal trends a lot of people don't really know the extent of how things move in the back end you know which is expected and it's okay you know i think um you know that's why you start to see a lot of this narrative shift around how do we build trust how do we build transparency well you've hid everything that you do No, you're right. Like, like even even going to what you said about these end user licensing agreements, like you can easily just scroll to the bottom and and click a checkbox. You don't have to read all of that. And I mean, it's it's a design decision to put it, you know, in a place or 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 gated in such a way where it's going to be an impedance to the flow of how you move through the service. 
So people are just like, oh, let me just get to the thing. Yeah, if I click a next button and it has me paginate or scroll through six pages of legal, yeah, I'll click that. <laughs> you just save me, what, five, 15 minutes of reading all that? I don't want to read that. I just want to use my new shiny device. Right? right. So let's learn more about Ube. Let's learn more about you, the person. I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll get more into your work later. You're originally from Hawaii. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, this is correct. Tell me what it was like growing up there. There's a lot of different emotions with growing up on an island. And although it's part of the, you know, colonized U.S. states, you know, it still embraces a lot of like island culture, people that are Guamanian or Samoan, Tongan, even islanders that are from I don't know, Portugal, even Japan, you have right around the corner as well. And then all the Pacific islands, you know, Filipinos also came and kind of congregated that at this island. So, you know, you have a lot of mixed cultures. Um, you speak a lot of different languages and people, or at least my family, we really embrace the cultures that we occupied. Mine in particular focus more on the Japanese Filipino makeup. For all the people that don't know, I'm Black, Japanese, Native American, Cherokee, and Filipino. So, there's a lot going on in the background and a lot that kind of is a juxtaposition of welcome identity and trying to reconfigure and how that aligns with my political visual self, especially on the mainland market. But, you know, when you're in like pretty much the melting pot and brown bag of the islands, it feels like there's like no worries and you have this expectation kind of like where anybody has grown up that it's like that everywhere else. You know, you really embrace like the the culture, the food. You love the people around you. You love to congregate. You have parties all the time. You have like the karaoke jams in the background and what have you. And, you know, a lot of the culture is embraced in the kitchen. You know, that's how you brought these valued connections. You know, it wasn't about classification or how much money you brought to the family or how much you made or what you did as a job. It was just more bringing your sense of self and like coming to a gathering. And, you know, the, these parties were mostly in people's backyards and garages. There's nothing fancy about it, you know? And it was like pretty much true to the heart of, you know, having the lao lao or a pig cooked in the back yard you know or a goat or what have you you know you had your older grandmothers aunts uncles cooking in the kitchen you had some oysters in the corner you had the kids playing and what have you like a lot of this like sentiment and feeling is essentially what i try to go back to and showcase within different parts of like my professional experience personal experience and all the different social channels that I occupy and this adds and is a huge anchor to bringing that consistency within authentic experiences is how do I capture what I went through as a kid in, in the islands into the new environments that I occupy and it's very difficult but at the same time there's people that are welcoming that are up for buying into this overall lay of the land. 
Now, growing up there, were you like really getting into design or, or art or anything? Like, were you like a really creative kid or a creative teenager? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was a very creative kid. You know, I was one of those kids that were very particular, had OCD, but I was the only person that had that in my family. So I grew up in an environment where like a lot, a lot of my family members, you know, they were like hoarders, (laughs) they like pack rats, a lot of stuff around them. So maybe it was like rejection of having all this stuff around and trying to figure out how do I create a controlled space within the perspective of a, you know, four or five-year-old or even, even into a teenager. I played with Legos a lot. I would build based on the instructions and then dismantle it, create a new invention. I did like basically pixelations of like the Ninja Turtles, which was amazing at the time. Um, I would build planes, you know, motorized sets, uh, marble creations and what have you. And yeah, so there's that part. And then I had like my artistic side, you know, Bob Ross was pretty, it was pretty big time. So I got into like oil painting. That's where I started to like really work with like a new medium and what have you. And then I always drew like my own kind of Marvel cards. X-Men cards were very popular along with like any other type of sports cards. So I wanted to try to make my own set and what have you. So a lot of what I did was self-taught and nobody even knew what being a creative or a designer or a practitioner in the artistic space. It was very foreign, you know, to my family. And essentially, let's be clear, nobody thought you could have a profession out of that. And the overall perception was, hey, are you are you painting pictures? Are you are you sketching? Okay, the, I guess that's okay. But what else are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, are you an engineer? Are you a doctor? Are you a lawyer? You know, like it was just something that like everybody gravitated to within my family because it was it was all that we knew, and nobody was really going down to those verticals. I grew up not in the best place of Hawaii Islands. You know, it's not like the glitz and glamour of what people visit. You know, it's in a pretty pretty rough area of Wamanala. And rough in the context of looking back. Growing up, I mean, that was just the state of mind. That was just who I was. But, you know, that's why as an adult, pulling in whatever revenue having the visibility, um, having this working knowledge. It's great to have something that wasn't in particularly accessible to our family. It's a lot of like colorism. It's like dealing with like being landlocked and also just like coming back to the island. If you went to the mainland, basically U.S. to go to school, have a job, you always came back to to support the family. You would never leave and keep going off to different um, greener pastures. It was just an unwritten rule, unfortunately. So it got to a point where, hey, how do we build and use these new kind of outliers, new to me, predefined for many people that already had this structure and safety nets in place? You know, going to school, going to college, knowing what you're going to major in, knowing what your interest is in high school, you know, doing AP classes. That's more the academia side. 
then you have like this cultural shift of like, okay, there's a language barrier, you know, because I grew up speaking mostly, it was a mixture of like Japanese, Hawaiian, and Filipino. And, you know, sprinkle of like English in a pigeon way, that's basically a slang. So not the correct way <laughs> to speak English, I quickly realized. But like, Having that interaction with somebody in the mainland and then coming from the islands, it just makes you self-conscious because you're the only one speaking with an accent. You know, you're the only one that embraces like different traits of the of your culture. And essentially you're trying to integrate yourself into something that you're always built up to look forward to, which was kind of American quintessential culture, things that you see on TV like the the white picket fences and the large property and the house. And yeah, that was something that you kind of strive towards and that was ingrained in you. And in the mainland, you have like the, the paper bag test to kind of determine your, your worth based on how fair-skinned you were. And this was very prevalent even in the islands, you know, even in a melting pot. Still, you have this like, oh, if you're a lighter skin, you can tell that you're a Taurus, you know, a Halley. Like, you just, you have to darken up, which is not like the status quo, but you have, like, contradictory thoughts in your family because they're trying to enforce, hey, you need to be lighter and able to enable you to navigate within the mainland space of America, you know? Mm-hmm. So stay out of the sun, be lighter, stifle your accent, you know, try to speak more, quote unquote, American, have that like, (laughs) that vernacular, that slang, and you're kind of brought to embrace your culture, but at the same time, try to adopt another one and strive towards that while concealing your own identity. And that's something that even till this day, I, I tend to struggle with, you know, even though you know, we've shared the stage many times, Maurice, where it's like, hey, how do we bring our authentic selves? You know, what does that mean? Is it even true? Is it prevalent? The long and short of it is is no. You know, if I brought my authentic self to work, kind of the foundation island boy, I mean, A, there would be a language barrier. B, it would just be too welcoming, too hyper-empathetic, you know, giving your sense of self in order to embrace these new connections, like nobody really does that in corporate identity, let alone in a professional landscape. So yeah, we can unpack that a lot more, but um, I'll I'll pause there. I mean, you you already unpacked a lot. So (laughs) I mean, part of that I do want to revisit, I think a little bit later, but I'm curious, it sounds like all of this might have been the impetus for you to leave Hawaii and and go to San Francisco. You, You studied design there at a, at a few colleges in San Francisco. Walk me through that time. I mean, you were at Berkeley, you were at CCA, like, like walk me through that time. Yeah, I would say like in, in sophomore year of, of high school, that's where I was pretty much going through a huge transition culturally, self-identity, also just seeing how things and structures and academia worked in the mainland and it was very different from what I was used to and it was a very hard experience but at the same time I found out that I was incredibly bright so you know I would go through all the different classes I wasn't really challenged and you know this is why I started to leverage 
City College. So you can do all AP classes, but if you do that, what is next? You have to start doing undergraduate classes. And then I figured out in high school, hey, the more classes you take for a college credit, you can apply that to whatever school you go to for your undergrad. That's very lucrative. That sounds about right. And take note, nobody's funneling my my rent, my groceries, let alone my higher education and extracurricular activities, which was like sports and playing a little football. Uh, I did bowling, pool. I mean, like, you know, I tried to get into like a lot of different areas while at the same time trying to find myself and see where I fit within the new landscape of uh, kind of these these cliques that, that form in high school. And I quickly realized, at least looking back, that being hyper-empathetic, I wasn't hyper-empathetic, but I really cared about the well-being of others. You know, I didn't, I didn't agree with bullying. You know, I tried to make everybody feel welcome, but at the same time, try to be very personal to different demographics. I never saw myself as just one thing. It was something that I always, I wouldn't say rejected, but I just, I could never pigeon myself pigeonhole myself to be to be one thing because I embrace so many different things and cultures you know like I could never call myself like yes I'm American you know or I could never pick one particular identity that I embrace or even my makeup of myself it's something that going through the involvement and starting to learn who I was, I think I embraced different channels of that to really play into the gray area and see what the benefits are for, hey, what if I, you know, if I'm signing on for a job interview at a retail store, was it better to put my Filipino background or Japanese or mixed? Or could I play my black card? You know, these were things that I was starting to find out and, you know, just trying to demystify like what it meant to be these different backgrounds and whether it was cool to be quote unquote mixed. There was a period where it was, but even if you were, you still identified with one particular identity, you know, and that was your dominant one. Um, And typically if you're mixed with um, African-American or black, you identify with that. You know, it's better. You can segue into groups more. You have more of a support structure. But if you identify that kind of ambiguity, it just goes off into the abyss. You know, you have to figure that on your own. Google search is not going to help you out. Back to the academia, you know, I was basically finding out I first got into computer programming, surprisingly, and did like C, Unix, Linux, Java, CSS, HTML. HTML3. And, you know, that's where I thought my kind of digital calling was. And let's be clear, I'm trying to figure this out. I don't have mentors. I don't even know what a mentor is. Nobody in my family knows like, hey, you know, this is digital arts. So I'm kind of finding this out and finding out that I really don't want to be an engineer. I don't want to write code. And when I was at Berkeley, I found out through an instructor And he turned me on to kind of web development. And this is when I also met, I would consider them my mentors today, Ricardo Gomez and uh, Steve Jones. And, um, 
you know, like they, they really kind of shaped and they provided that color of like, hey, this is industrial design. I remember it was, I can't remember if it was specifically, I think it was Ricardo Gomez, but he, he wanted me to enter, um, what is this, a sneaker design competition. And I was like, what is this? What do you mean? I don't design sneakers. Like I, I have a pretty good portfolio that I, I built and um, built up in high school. But what do you mean a competition for drawing? It was just so foreign to me, you know, and I'm just like kind of quiet Islander boy, you know, uh, just trying to figure it out. You know, I was always hesitant to like speak up because I was very self-conscious of my accent, not saying the right words and articulating myself in a way that could reflect my thoughts. You know, that was very hard. I knew it in different dialects, but in the English dialect, I could not think of like some of the words. So like that made me hesitant when I had these interactions. So this is kind of the beauty of going into art is that you could use other channels to really showcase how you think as an individual, no matter what linguistics uh, barriers you have. So I went into that competition. I was runner up, didn't win, but it was great to have somebody like invest in you. And that's when I also met Steve Jones as well. And he really provided that aperture mainly into like graphic design and, you know, showing that like, hey, there's art schools out there, you know, like here is this thing called industrial design. And I'm like, ooh, what is that? That's kind of like an inventor. But wait, I could use a little bit of like my programming background. I could work on different platforms, whether it's digital, whether it's like an interface, human ergonomics, like, whoa, this is, is kind of cool. You know, like I could get behind that. So that's when I applied to um, CCAC. And then I, I got in. I pretty much didn't make it to a, a lot of other art schools. But, you know, again, on this journey of trying to figure it out, trying to peel back the layers and see, you know, what my calling was. Because honestly, going through this trip, I was lost half the time. You know, it wasn't like I had this predetermined track where it was like, yes, Ube Urban today and customer user experience and the digital platforms. That's what I was going to do as a kid. I didn't know. I wanted to become an inventor. Nobody knew what that was. Nobody even knew that it was a job, you know, in my family, let alone my network. Going back into shifting into going to CCAC, that's where I really started to flex my creative muscle and um, started to really adopt this new culture. And adopting this new culture, you'll start to uncover that it's intersectional. It's the fabric of who I am because it's the involvement. It's how I interacted. It's how I presented myself. It's how I develop these methodologies. It was me starting to learn what I did and didn't like within a culture that was very foreign to me. And, you know, trying to adopt the culture that essentially wasn't designed for us was something that I was living and still living to this day, which is uh, quite amazing. So my aperture of the overall world started to just like really open up. And, you know, I started to go into different art forms, learning about like art history, all the different channels from interior design, fashion, the creative 
writing arts and what have you. I, my mind was blown. And then I'm around an eclectic amount of like mindsets and diversity from people around the world, from various economic levels. And it was just refreshing. You know, I, lo- I met a lot of great people that I never had experience meeting in my whole lifetime, you know, until I went to college. So yeah, it, it was basically an eye opener of like, hey, there's supportive people, you know, oh, there's people that think the same way I do, but they're from different backgrounds, you know, like, oh, you're getting to know me for me, and I don't have to provide my professional sense of self forward or the person I want to put forward and have that perceived value in order to gain acceptance. You know, it's like this was when I was starting to drop down my my walls, lower my guard, because I was pretty much on guard for until my early 20s, you know, and yeah, this is something that also I learned about myself speeding up and to current day of some friction points. Like if that one particular pain point is pressed in that way that I've experienced when I was a kid, boom, the guard goes up, you know, and then I shut down. And, you know, when I look back into like who I was and tried to showcase and flourish into, you know, this like more charismatic and open person and bringing your authentic self to the forefront, that wasn't me. I was the introverted self for a very long time. And I still am a hybrid, you know, I'm introverted, but I'm extroverted and I can turn it on, but I do need to recharge myself. So I've heard in past interviews that you've you've talked about this transition to the mainland as a culture shock, which I think you definitely have outlined that this was kind of a real shifting and changing of worlds, not just because you're sort of breaking out from the the island to the mainland. I think that's one part of the narrative, but also kind of expanding your own awareness of what you can do as a creative and as a designer. And and I, I think it's also just really cool that part of that story is like getting inspired by black designers. Steve Jones, that we've had on the show. God, Steve was like one of my first guests back in 2013, 10 really? years ago. Jesus, wow. my God. <laughs> um, but I, I say all that to say, like, I think it's really cool that through your education and even through getting inspired by these black designers that like it helped to sort of shape who you were at this very, I think this, this very important stage, you know, the, those kind of like, I would say late teens, early twenties going into college. Like that's such a highly impressionable time in terms of the kind of work that you want to do, the kind of person that you want to become. Um, I just think it's really, it's really great how much that time has, has really shaped you. Yes. Yes. It, it has. And you know, that timeline, we, pretty much all cultivate it in in so many different points of our lives. And, you know, that's why for me personally, yes, that was a groundbreaking time, but even people that I influence and interface with today, you never know if that moment is going to be that pinnacle moment, you know, whether it's their first job or they are a senior within their field, but you just, you never know when you're going to have these meaningful experience that people are going to, reflect on and be like, hey, I had this like conversation with Ube or, you know, like he pointed me in this direction and um, we kind of went back and forth and I I spun off and did my own thing. Like, you know, it doesn't have to come back full circle. And this is why I really love to like embrace these relationships, whether they form into a new bond or, you know, they pretty much 
spin off and go into their own trajectory. It's just very interesting how we kind of influence the world. Now, speaking of of spinning off and going into your own trajectory, uh, mm-hmm. and this was a really interesting part that I learned about you coming into this. Tell me about Ube's ice cream shop. How did that come about? Like, tell me about all of that. Yeah, yeah, sure. This was basically an answer to working into smaller consultancies and boutique agencies in San Francisco. During that time, it was, you wanted to work at basically the two main spots, which was either Frog Design or IDEO. I could go down the list of other ones that were very hot during that like design culture. I went through a lot of different management styles. I was a pixel pusher at that time. So, you know, I was at that stage where I was just trying to get my leg in the door, get that professional experience, and also start really building these tools that I either learned in at, at Berkeley or, you know, at CCAC or what have you, and bring that to the forefront. Most of the uh, my interactions with management probably wasn't the greatest, you know, like never really saw eye to eye or I just didn't like other people being treated basically of where you sat in the ladder, myself included, you know, like, let's be clear, you can pretty much feel if you're not being respected as a person, let alone a professional and that doesn't feel good. <laughs> you know, you don't go back from a long working day and be like, oh, yes, you know, I feel recharged. You know, a lot of these experiences kind of break you down and make you self-reflect. That's what I could call it now. But during its time was navigating to something that was better. So that was basically a rejection of how I wanted to treat people. You know, like if I had my own company, How would I want to embrace others? What would be my methodology? How would we interface with our clients? Do we want to to flatten the org? Whatever that meant. You know, that didn't exist during its time. It was just like, hey, I'm a true person. I'm a big grunge. I'm a really play into the boutique street life and also showcase a little bit of my uh, graffiti background. Actually, a lot of it. (laughs) And... Ube's ice cream shop pretty much comprised of kind of omni-channel experiences or how we define that today. It's spun into doing graphic prints to doing custom bicycles. That's what the primary business was. And we did this for small, medium, large businesses. We did it for a lot of prolific clients as well, from Robin Williams to Prince the Artist, Mel Gibson. I mean, like we've done so many different custom initiatives for a lot of A-listers, sportslers as well. But like the long and short of it was if you went into our environment, our studio, it was there to just pretty much what you're doing now, Maurice, is breaking down the walls, be your authentic self. Be who you want to be. Check your ego. Check yourself. Check your personified value at the door here. We're going to have a different way of building our packages, our ice cream. You know, So when people came back, returning customers, they would have this kind of lingo, this dialect that pulled us together. Like, hey, I want to come 
to have a single scoop of your service. That meant just pretty much the basic <laughs> package, you know, like, or, hey, Ube, I want the full experience. I want the banana split with the sprinkles on top. Okay, cool. I'm going to have to allocate more of my team to your initiative. Like, this is really big. This is uh, a high value target for any particular client. But you started to have this, like, overall internal culture and feeling of like, hey, we're creating something new, but it's so modular where I didn't want to have control. But like, as the business started to flourish, as the visibility started to become a little bit more known, also tapping into like a global market, you have to start growing up, you know, and it's kind of counterintuitive of like the graffiti world. You know, you do this amazing art, you don't know how long it's going to be on the walls, you know, on a bus, on whatever surface that you choose. You're competing with your, either your friends, some competing artists to really get your name out there, to put your art out there, you know, on a street level, but you never put your actual name to it. It was always your graffiti name. You know, it's this personified value. Like, yeah, if you knew me, you knew the art, you knew my name, you know, and vice versa for all my friends out there. But when you start to have more of that, public lens, I had to start making these decisions of, should I represent the brand, the business, and sell it with my my face on it? Or should I sell it for the brand of the name? I went down the route of really popularizing the, the brand through the name, through the face. And there's positives and negatives about it that we can go into later. But yeah, that's pretty much like the the beginnings and involvement of of the ice cream shop. Well, I mean, let's go into it. Let's get into it now. I mean, you were really it sounds like you were really making a name for yourself as a as a creative in San Francisco, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're an artist, you're a painter. Look, I saw the videos of you on the track bikes zooming through San Francisco. Like that yeah. would surprise me because I was like, this is not this is not the way that I <laughs> That I met before, like on a track bike, got chopsticks in his hair. I was like, "Who is this? This is not. This is not who I knew." Talk more about that. Basically, I was just uh, doing whatever I I wanted brand wise. I, I didn't care about what my identity was on the forefront. You know, I pretty much was a trendsetter within my own world. And being in San Francisco, you know, like. Everybody embraces that. You know, you could be whoever you want to be. You could be whatever niche culture. Guess what? You're going to have your group there. And if you want to cross-pollinate your group and try to find somebody that's completely opposite to you, that is readily available as well. So you had like this mixing pot of, you know, a lot of what I embraced and what I could relate to growing up. But it was just really pushing the behavior of like my social interactions and like starting to like really embrace and be proud of who I am and who I was meant to be at that given time, you know, and, and forward. Yeah, I could call myself like a entrepreneur or, you know, a creator, but um, it came down to, you know, that's where I started to take people under my, my wing. That's when I started to glorify, you know, kind of personalized mentorships on doing internship programs and what have you, work with like um, schools in the Bay Area and what whatnot. And um, yeah, yeah, it, I learned a lot of different elements of what I embrace today, which is something I would never 
look back and have that reasoning that, you know, hey, you know, like I could be an evangelist in the space, you know, people could actually look towards my guidance for doing better or exploring other areas like that just wasn't top of mind. It was more about how can we run a successful business? How do we keep it grunge and small? And how do we keep it a boutique agency in the city? You know, like we're trying to embrace and reflect the culture of San Francisco. We are proud of that. But also I was proud of like my heritage. So like I had the long hair, I had my man bun. Yeah, I had a lot of chapsticks that match with all the different outfits and whatnot. I wore a lot of purple, a lot of lavender because uh, Ube is a purple yam and my family is infatuated with purple. So if you see that in the branding or anything going forward, you know, it, it goes down to basically the crux of what I'm based off of is kind of this like purple identity. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's where I started to like also like flourish like my management styles and start to explore like what areas of expertise that we wanted to define ourselves by. And long and short of it, I just wanted to not want a pigeonhole. So you'll start to see this over and over again. You'll start to see the pattern of me not wanting to be defined as one particular thing. And this is both in my personal landscape and professional world. I don't want to be known as one, two, three, you know, or, hey, he's this, or hey, he's that. I know we have to like have these nomenclatures in order to kind of define who we are within different spaces. But I essentially just wanted to put the brand of the people first, you know, myself first, my team, you know, and really embrace that. And this was before, you know, we would showcase to everybody in our narratives or in our proposals, hey, this is the team. Here's all the stories. You know, here are all the people you're working with. Like, we're doing that, and we didn't know if it was popular or not. We just thought, hey, it'd be great to just really showcase cool individuals. You know, like we have different working styles. We are essentially doing our own things. This is my own thing, but it's becoming popular, and my friends would pretty much go towards, hey, you know, everybody's doing something big. I want to get on that, you know, and I would have friends that would be videographers or other graphic designers or even photographers. And this also helped put that brand out there, you know, and like then you had the Japanese market and people from around the world really chomp out the bit with like what's going on in San Francisco, you know, because like if you're doing something anywhere trendsetting, in the bay, like the bay proper. I'm like, if you're doing it in that seven by seven grid of San Francisco, you're doing something well, whether you know it at that given time or you self-reflect. At the time, I didn't know I was doing something that big. I mean, yes, the A-listers came in, but I mean, when you're doing a one-off client project, I mean, they don't really have that sustainability as opposed to like doing a large contract with like a a corporate gig or something. But the long and short of it is we're just essentially doing what we loved. We're riding track bikes everywhere. Track bikes, FYI, do not have brakes. So basically you're carving like a snowboard using your back tire to slow down going down the hills of San Francisco or climbing them. Let's just say my legs were like double the size they are today. (laughs) 
<laughs> and they're fueled by tacos and burritos and horchata. So, like, that's all we ate all the time. It was a beautiful grunge time before a lot of the gentrification happened within the rest of the parts of the neighborhood and what have you. Like, the, the city that it is today it was way different from... The early 2000s, uh, I would say the shift happened in about like 2014, you know, um, and that would be my catapult out of the Bay Area into a newer metropolitan city. So is that sort of what precipitated your move from San Francisco here to Atlanta? It is, it is. And, you know, I also met my wife in the Bay, which was quite amazing, you know, like this added to just that overall mindset of like, okay, what, what is the new pastures going to be, you know, like, and yes, being a lucrative, being in a lucrative industry and having your name out there, it was great, but you have to hustle hard. And let's just say it's hard to make good money and live in the Bay area and have all the overhead. So, you know, it just got to a point where, you know, I was at a, pinnacle point of my career of like, what do I want to do next? You know, do I want to grow the company? Do I want to sell it? Do I want to get into back into maybe leadership for another company? Do I want to try corporate identity? You know, because I, I rejected it and everybody around me, you know, especially being in San Francisco, you didn't really support um, larger corporations. You know, you always try to keep things more small and intimate. And um, a lot of the larger firms like the IDOs and the Frogs, I mean, you know, they're basically bought from larger parent companies now. And, you know, just the overall culture and what it meant as a designer is it's just very different. And then you have like these new industries and titles of, you know, UX, UI, UX researchers, copywriters, and this like digital existence pretty much shaping what people do as a craft, you know, being an artist, a designer, like this is something that's outside of that digital field. This is like using your hands. This is like using the city as your landscape. This is like tinkering to come up with these amazing ideas. And I feel like there's just kind of a lost art and direction for that. You know, people develop their skills, which is great, just in the tech world. But in order to push that to a different barrier, you have to really leverage those meaningful connections, whether it's through your relationships or even, you know, you as a core artist, what that meant. How do you bring it back to that space? And this is something that I'm always, it's an infinite circle. How do I re-embrace why I got into this industry? You know, like we talked about before, Maurice, you know, we're just so jaded. We know what's happening behind a curtain. We've been around this space for more than 15 years. Like it's, things are changing, but a lot of the crux of it, guess what? Still the same. You can change the landscape. You can change the platform methodologies. They still stand, you know, the tools change, whatever, learn a new tool. But, you know, people aren't paying for you to be basically a pixel pusher. They're paying for you to look beyond 
what is in this occupation? You know, how can you be a proven leader? How do you know about all these different aspects and verticals of the business? You know, like that's what they want. And if mm-hmm. they can get more titles and more hats out of you, guess what? That's their benefit. And is it your benefit? Is that what you want to do? I don't know. It depends. It depends on the grass is greener. You know, there's been times where I want to wear one or two hats. And there's other times where I want to wear eight and I'll do it at a cost. So it, it, it all depends on where you're at at that um, given time within your career, life and what have you. Well, that's been a shift now, I'd say, probably over the past, I think, 10 plus years now of design sort of moving, not out of visual. I mean, I think visual, of course, is still a big part of it because we all have eyes, but like moving into design and strategy and business, how it all works together, particularly when you see the rise of like SaaS companies or other product-based mm-hmm. companies, you know, it's not so much about, oh, how can I express myself as a designer or as a creative? It's about how can I use my skills for the product? Like, it feels right. like that's what the the push has sort of gone into. Yeah. And I mean, like, let's be clear that the compensation is ridiculous. Re- Ridiculous. Oh, like, yeah. Hey, yeah. Yes. I would love to just really explore my craft as an artist, as a model maker, as an industrial designer. But you compare that compensation to what you do within strategy or even the tech world. Whew, yeah. Let's just say it's a cool four times more. Yeah. And it's hard not to notice that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You're like, <laughs> How do I get into that world? You know, especially if you're like, I wouldn't say like a starving artist, but, you know, let's just say your net worth, like keeping that up, like you're working, you're hustling, you're working like a dog, you know, Mm -hmm. and then you can sit back and work in a corporate job, rake the funding, have that apply and uh, fulfill your lifestyle, give you accessibility of things that were unattainable, maybe going back to kind of my family and my basis, you know, like the numbers that I see, I'm just like, that's unheard of, you know, like nobody makes, nobody's making that money, that kind of money in my family. I don't care who you are. It's just, we don't come from that type of background. Plus guess what? Again, it's just, it wasn't important. So like kind of shifting that mindset where you bring up this as well, Maurice, which is something that I kind of self-reflect of like, you're like, this is not really the Uve that that I know, you know? And I'm all like, for me personally, I'm like, oh my gosh, that like nicks a little bit out of my like thick exterior. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, this is interesting on like my kind of new platform on what I spun off into, you know? Like you're seeing me more in like the suits and ties and corporate identity, but that wasn't my basis. You know, I wasn't like that all the time. And guess what? If I had the option, I always want to be that authentic self of what I was in in the Bay because I learned so much, you know, I learned so much about myself, interact with people, what it meant to burn bridges, the highs and lows of having your own company, taking risks, like it got pretty deep. And that's why I never capture kind of my journey as puppy dogs and ice cream, like it was rough. You know, and to be honest, like it's still rough till this day. Like that journey, I would say it's easier, but it's different. And 
the things that I have to think about as an adult and somebody that's very seasoned in my career, it's just a, a different landscape of, you know, what's important, you know, the visibility, things that are also currency to other people. Let's just say everything that my makeup is based off of isn't really currency uh, within corporate space, which is very interesting. So what do you do to try and maintain your authentic self? You know, it, it kind of jostles me a little bit like, whoa, wow. You know, like, yeah, I have my predefined journey, but not a lot of people turn the tables that often of like, hey, Ube, I want to get to know you. You know, it's more of like, I want to get to know you, but like there's some type of value and we need some trade-offs going forward in, in order to cultivate this relationship. And this is where it becomes a little complicated because like I'm invested in growing people, but it doesn't have to go full circle. But the relationships in, I wouldn't even beyond corporate identity, it's always tit for tat. What are you going to do for me? You know, you got to play that bureaucratic landscape of like, okay, you do this for me, I'll do that. And, you know, from there, we'll grow off each other and, you know, eventually burn bridges and shape shift and have go through all the reorgs and what have you. And essentially, you're just looking out for the best interests of yourself. So like, if you go against that, but you're living and navigating that landscape, it's, it's interesting. And it's a social experiment that will never get old. So let's take like work out of that. Yeah. And let's take also, I think doing this for, for other people's benefit. Mm -hmm. How do you try to maintain your authentic self to yourself? This is probably a difficult part of the navigation because being your authentic self, especially if I'm in an environment that is not receptive to that, but it's definitely throttled. You know, yes, I'm personable. Yeah, I'm authentic. Am I my authentic self? Absolutely not. And we've had these conversations in the past, Maurice, of like when you have even an uptick, 5%, 10% of bringing your authentic self and who you are, we know what comes from that. You know, like I knew my background wasn't the best. I knew that it wasn't picture perfect, but there are a lot of things that I embrace and, you know, still do to this day. It gets to a point where how do I really have acceptance? How do I also like, how do I um, mitigate stereotypes when I'm interacting with people and how do I put that forward as well? You know, like I want people to see past what you see me on the forefront. You know, if you see the suit, you see the armor, you see whatever kind of monetary objects that are on me, whatever. But like when it comes down to it, that's not the person that I'm upholding. You know, it's basically my, it's my armor and I'm very particular about it, but I'm doing it just for myself and myself only. It's not to gain acceptance. It's not for other people to gain any type of, uh, how do I say this, acceptance within their environment. It's just, hey, how do I navigate my sense of self being myself? But how do I also navigate being myself and going along with the current? You know, like, how do I blend in? Because I have a hard time within society to blend in, at least the physical 
forefront would be just how I dress or even my hair or even being the ambiguity of ethnicity. You know, people are just very curious human beings. They want to know. And a lot of people cannot bite their tongue. So if I'm getting a cup of coffee, they're going to be like, oh, wow. Hey, cool hair. You know, or get some like sly comment of, hey, have you seen that cartoon character? And this is all interactions that you honestly don't have time for, but they just come to you, you know, or how long does it take? How long does it take to get ready in the morning? And these are basically like, party tricks yeah they're kind of cool but like this is what people want to know about me and it's a very unfortunate because i'm a lot more than my personified value even just hey ask me about what i want to do a lot of people don't ask me what i do as a professional you're probably the first person in a while that's asked me hey Uwe, what do you do as a professional what do you do as opposed to having that talk track that i have with the clients but I feel like a puppet sometimes when I go through that vernacular, you know, I'm just, I have my bullet points. I know what pretty much makes people's eyebrows rise in interest. And, you know, they're like, oh, cool. Awesome. I think you've used some very interesting language here. I don't know. This is not turned into a therapy session, I promise. But um, (laughs) I, I notice this tension between who you are when you're just just you just yourself nobody else is around and the ube urban that is presented to the world like you mentioned your dress and your hair as armor and even when i asked about the authentic self i I was like take work out of it take other people out of it and you brought them right back in yeah i noticed that kind of tension between the you who you are and the you that you have to be in order right. to kind of move forward in this hellscape capitalist society, I guess. Yes. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, it is. It's very accurate. And, you know, this basically aligns with um, my identity, both professionally and when to turn it on, when to turn it off. And there's a lot of gray area where it's just confusing or a lot of times it's just so, you're just so saturated to, um, you know, kind of be this person that you aren't, but you have to play these cards so frequently when you do shape shift or you're around different friends or around different networks, you kind of go into this like behavior of like, okay, cool. Let me just use these cards real quick. You know, it's, it's productized, it's easy and it works. And then when you use that in front of the wrong audience, you're like, wait, hold on, what happened? Right. So you you start to become a little automated yourself and I'm not going to lie. It's happened to me and it still happens to me. Like I have my best friends, they have to pull me out of it. They have to check me. They're like, Hey, um, I really don't care about what your last initiative was. I don't care how much you sold that work for. I don't care what you bought. Can you stop about talking about that? You know, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm sorry. You know, mm-hmm. and then you basically have to pull your head out of your ass and just be like, hey, you know, I, I'm trying to work on being myself, but at the same time, you, you know, you like you're saying, you know, you have these tensions, you have these friction points where you're playing different personified values and then you you get caught up into you know being that person if i'm an executive leader 
I, I can't be the authentic self. It just, that's not the currency. But I could be my authentic self around my best friends because that's it. But again, you're, you're constantly playing different cards. And if you play the, the wrong card in a different landscape or environment, you might get checked on it. Yeah. And I typically do with people that are still authentic, you know, and still themselves and coming back as the grown up Ube and interfacing with these folks that, you know, still embrace that. Yeah, you, you can definitely guarantee that, yeah, there, there's a ton of tension drawing between the lines of bringing full authenticity in your makeup forward and having that valued. But if it isn't valued, you just, those talking points, they just start to be placed in your back pocket. You know, you start to not use them as often. You start to just use like basic talk tracks. May I offer some advice? Yes, absolutely. All the time. Always welcome. (laughs) I think if there's any place in this country outside of perhaps San Francisco where you can lean into the the various sort of Venn diagram intersections of your identity and use that Mm -hmm. to your advantage. Like it's it's here. I mean, yes, it's the South. I get yeah. that. It's Atlanta, you know, but it's Georgia, I should say. Georgia and Atlanta are two different things. But I feel like if there's any place you can make that happen, it would be here outside of San Francisco, perhaps New York, too. I don't know. And this is not to say like, oh, pick up and move or whatever. But I would like to see the Ube that leans more into those sort of spots that it sounds like make other people uncomfortable, especially as you've described it, right. and see how far that gets you. Because I think if anything with personal branding now, so much is about identity mm-hmm. and about the different spaces that you occupy, whether you are queer, whether you're disabled, you know, different race, etc. Like you can lean into those and find community and find like-minded people and, and opportunities and things of that nature. Given where you're at now, like you are currently free from corporate obligation, which is, <laughs> yeah. a, which is a fun way of saying you're not, you don't have a job right now. But given that you're, you're outside of that space now, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what kind of work do you want to be doing? What do you want the next chapter of your story to be? Yeah. I mean, that's something that I'm um, kind of asking myself during this duration as well. I mean, there's always topics of kind of shifting into being a mentor, a coach, a leader, um, an advocate within the space. But that would mean kind of going back into the best and worst practices of kind of my own brand. Let's just say <laughs> I'm not, I don't have the best work ethic when it comes to representing myself. So I need to sometimes stay steer clear of that. But from my understanding... You know, I'm trying to cultivate just consistencies in my life. And to be honest, it's it's really hard to answer that question because work, I know it sounds like it's priority based on my interactions, but on my actual list, it's at the bottom of the list. So like, it's hard for me to devote that much time and energy of like what the forecasts are. You know, if you asked me a couple of moons ago, I'd be like, this is where I want to be in, you know, three years. I want to climb this ladder. I want this visibility. But now I've pretty much had 
my appetite fulfilled in so many different areas, it, that question of what do you want to do next, it becomes much more difficult to process. It's almost like grass is greener, like what am I revisiting that I've already done to fulfill that void? And how sustainable is that void? Like I could go in corporate identity, I could do agencies, I could have my own brand, but like, what are the the trade-offs and do they coincide where, where my life is now? There's a lot of things that come into play rather than like, what is the ideal job? <laughs> you know, like if you could have any job, what would be your perfect job? Right. It's like a behavioral question that you would get from like human resources or something. <laughs> and um, yeah. So, I mean, coming into that, you know, I, I still struggle with like creating that identity and uh, that appetite for what is to come. To be honest, I'm seeing what's in the market because, as you know, there's new titles, there's new formations, and who these new practitioners are and can be and which ones are the same. Because I've had over 20 different titles, but I do the same type of work. So that's also something that's very interesting to me as a professional as well. But um, I know I didn't answer your question. That's all I got as of now. I was going to say, you know, if you haven't sort of thought of what that is because of, you know, just sort of the time that you're at now, like, give it some thought. Give it some thought. Like, don't think that you have to rush right into slotting into whatever the next position is that you know you could get because of the work that you've done. Like, really take some time and, like, sit down with yourself, do the introspection, do the work and think about where it is you can really be your most optimal self without the armor, without the the expectations of other people. Like really, really take some time and think about that. You know, on to the next and searching under different rocks and crevices to hopefully find um, more talented people to kind of inspire myself. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and everything. Where can they find that online? Yeah, you know, like you're not going to find authentic information, but um, you can get in touch with me either through my website, which would be www.ubeurban.com, basically first and last name. I'm pretty receptive on all my social channels, but, you know, you can also reach out on LinkedIn just type in first and last name again, Ube Urban, and um, you know, drop me a call, drop me a message if you want to grab some time on my calendar and kind of peel back the layers of the navigation and Ube Urban himself, because it's very difficult to provide that that identity forward. Yes, I have that kind of professional and corporate makeup, but you need to have discussions. You need to have the conversation in order to actually understand where my journey is and where it's heading. Well, and hopefully, you know, when people listen to this interview, that's that's what they'll start to get. Yes, yes. Thanks. Thanks again, Maurice, for your time. Ube, I just want to thank you, you know, so much for coming on the show. I mean... I sort of had an idea of where I thought this conversation might go. And certainly as I did my research and I was like, I didn't know all this stuff about Ube and I've met him and we've talked on panels and stuff, but I will be interested to see 
what your next move is after you've really kind of, like I said, you know, and this, this is advising, take it or leave it. But if you take the time to really like think about what you want that next move to be like Ube without the armor, et cetera, I'd be mm-hmm. really interested to see where that, where you go in the future with that. Cause I mean, you know, you and I, I would say we're probably roughly right around the same age. Like we've reached this point. We've reached this point in our career <laughs> where like, We've paid our dues. We've paid our dues. We know our shit. And we're at the point where we can start to really carve our own identity and and make the path forward with doing what we want to do and not so much about what the corporate sphere might have in space, whether that's entrepreneurship or, or what have you. But I feel like the more you lean into that, lean into those kind of uncomfortable parts, I think that's where you'll really start to to really grow and shine more. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thanks Maurice. Um, really appreciate it. Big, big thanks to Ube Urban. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ube and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is sponsored by Brevity and Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is also sponsored by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With best-in-class customer service, free Whois privacy, and more, Hover is there to help you bring your online dreams to life. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on social media. You can find us on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. We're also on LinkedIn, too. We've been on LinkedIn for a while. I just haven't done a like great job of publicizing it, but you can catch us on LinkedIn as well. We're also on Spotify. We're on Amazon Music. And you can always leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.